Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I have Charlotte with me today. Hello, Charlie. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, very excited for today's episode. Excellent. Tell us who we've got. We've got Heather Darcy with us today. She's a researcher and historian who specialises in the Holy Roman Empire and early modern England. Yes, we're in early modern. I'm in my happy, happy zone. Um, she's here today to talk to us about her new book, The Children of the House of Cleves. Hello, Heather. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, we're thrilled to have you. And um, we're thinking that before we get into talking about The Children of the House of Cleves, which is your latest book, we should just kind of circle back a bit for all of our listeners who are into all things British and, dare we say it, Tudor. Well, I was um, gonna say, we never pass up an opportunity to bash Henry, do we? We do love to bash Henry VIII a little bit. Um, your first book, the book previous to this one, was about Anne of Cleves. That's the house that we're talking about today. So how does she fit into, into this story? Anna was the fourth wife of Henry VIII, and she is the one who was famously ugly and then dumped. And my first book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, does more of a deep dive into her origin and also her life story, because to me, it didn't make sense that Henry would spend that much money to bring over a woman and then just end a political alliance and a marriage because he thought she was unattractive. Turns out that her younger brother, Wilhelm, who became the Duke of Cleves, was going behind Henry's back and allying himself with France. And then, of course... Their elder sister, Zabilla, was married to the powerful elector of Saxony, and Wilhelm was actually str- fighting with the Holy Roman Emperor over this territory called Gelders, and hoping that he could have enough allies such that when the war actually happened, he could defeat the emperor. Henry did not like that, and thus we have an annulment, and Henry used or claimed that he was not attracted to Anna, not that she was ugly, but that he was not attracted to her as one of the bases to support the annulment, because, of course, annulments and divorces are very different, particularly in that time period. I just love that he's judging anyone, Charlie. (laughs) How is he judging anyone when he's, like, morbidly obese with a stinky leg, right? They they (laughs) say that if if there was anyone fat and smelly in the wedding bed that night, it was not Anne of Cleves. But I'm just thinking this this idea of an annulment, if you are claiming you know that nothing happened in the marriage bed therefore the the marriage can be set aside pleading that you just weren't that into her would be the sensible way to go absolutely and to dig a little bit deeper the 
divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survived rhyme while catchy is incorrect. <laughs> it's annulled, beheaded, died, annulled, beheaded, survived. And so Henry only had two legal wives at the time of his death. One was Jane Seymour, who was who predeceased him, of course, and Catherine Parr, who was still alive. So that's why he was buried next to her, because that was his only deceased legal wife. I love that. That's your historical thing that when it comes up, you get that little twitch in your eye, don't you? It's like, it's not divorced. Sometimes that and when Anna, uh, what is the other one? People like to say that Anna kept her head. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been a major international incident if she would have been beheaded. Yeah. <laughs> I, we're get, undoubtedly, we're going to circle back to her at some stage while we talk about her family in more detail. But I guess we should, let's go back um, and take our focus away from England and put it where it belongs. So what's the origin of the Vondermark family and their fortunes in the 15th century? They were originally counts of Mark. So the Fondemarks came from the county of Mark. And I think in the 12th century, of course, the details are in my new book, married into the ducal, or actually still a count, the county of Cleves. So then they kind of became Cleves Mark. And then in the early 15th century, Cleves was elevated to a duchy. The Holy Roman Emperor really liked this family. Uh, they... The Fondamachs intermarried with the Burgundian ruling, ruling family, and that's kind of where a lot of their international connections came from. And overall, they were very wealthy. They were very pro-imperial. And then Anna's mother's side was also very pro-imperial. So by the time we get to the end of the 15th century, we have this court that's well connected with Burgundy between marriages and being raised and the dukes being raised at the Burgundian court. And then you have two pro-emperor, pro-imperial families marrying through Anna's parents, Johann III of Clevesmark and Anna's mother, Maria of Jülichenberg. They've got some brilliant names. I'm just thinking they're all so wonderful. So this is where I'm going to mangle uh, pronunciation. Tell us a bit about Sibylla and is it Johann Friedrich? Yes. So in English, Sybil and John Frederick, Johann Friedrich, they, so Johann Friedrich, his uncle and his father protected Martin Luther. So they might be a little bit more familiar to people who are interested in the German Reformation. Johann Friedrich was the heir of his father. His uncle didn't have any legitimate children. So his uncle passed away in the 1520s and then his father became the elector of Saxony, and then when he passed away in 1532 or thereabouts is when Johann Friedrich becomes the elector. Their family, the House of Wetten, had a claim to Jülich, or in English, Juliers. Juliers, I actually don't really know how to say it in English, to be fair. <laughs> um, and so to prevent that, Johann, Anna's father, said, hey, I have Sibylla. Maybe your son, Johann Friedrich, wants to marry my daughter, Zabilla, and then that way they can kind of keep keep it in the family, as it were, between their sons. So that's how Zabilla gets introduced to Johann Friedrich. Johann Friedrich was originally betrothed to Charles V's sister, Catherine, who was named after her aunt, Catherine of Aragon, who was, of course, Queen of England. But okay, so this is Spain. This is Spain. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm saying a lot of place names, so this, I hope this uh, is great. I hope it's not too much. So. Johann Friedrich is in favor of keeping on with the Reformation. And we have to keep in mind when we look at particularly the German Reformation, it wasn't just changing the religion. It was picking political sides. 
So if you're pro-Lutheran, you're anti-emperor. And if you're pro-Catholic, you're pro-emperor. This put Johann Friedrich and his father and kind of the uncle at odds with the emperor. The uncle was a little bit more aloof and wasn't willing to openly go against the emperor. But then Johann Friedrich's father willingly, overtly did Lutheran-leaning type things during several diets, diets being kind of like meetings of parliament. We can think about it that way for the ruling territories in Germany. And Johann Friedrich carried that on. His father also created what we call the Protestant League, but that can also be the League of Schmalkald, the Schmalkaldic League. It's just named after a city wherein it was founded. And he continued on with that league. And because of that league, Thomas Cromwell thought it would be great for Henry to marry one of Isabella's sisters so that hopefully they could gain entry into that Protestant league. Oh my goodness. So yeah, we're we're getting sort of, it's, it's so political, these dynastic marriages. It's not just politics, it's religion, religious politics, and it's not just our tiny island. There's a lot happening and, and it's, I can feel myself, the gears turning in my head as I'm trying to, to, eloquently speak about it and correctly speak about it. But what's interesting with the family, though, is Anna and her older sister, Zabilla, and her brother, Wilhelm, all become, they kind of branch out in different ways by the time we hit the 1530s. And that's, of course, when certainly the German Reformation is in full swing. And then we see the English Reformation as well. And their lives kind of take separate tracks as a result of the different Reformations. Zabilla and her husband, Johann Friedrich, are a Lutheran power couple. Wilhelm doesn't care so long as he gets to keep this territory that he really, really wants. And Anna is a Catholic living in England, but maybe not as devout as some of her predecessors. It just, yeah. (laughs) I like, it's so baffling. And it's like, I think as well, people aren't necessarily, they don't gravitate if they're interested in this period towards the German side of things, do they, automatically? Because you have, like, obviously the French and the Spanish, and it, it's a it's a bigger deal, I think, to English-speaking people. But how does the political and marital intertwinement with England, how does this evolve? Of course, Jane Seymour dies. Mm-hmm. Henry needs to marry again because he... Once, well, for the security of the country, he should realistically try and have more children, hopefully sons. Anna and Amalia are both unwed at this point. Anna's premarital contract to Francis of Lorraine was dissolved in 1535, although Henry tries to use that as an excuse later on to have his own marriage to her annulled. It had been dissolved in 1535 because Anna's dad did not pay the money he was contractually obligated to for Anna to marry Francis of Lorraine. That caveat in mind. Anna is free to marry. Younger sister Amalia is free to marry. Henry sends his ambassadors to Wilhelm's court. Wilhelm becomes Duke of Cleves. Well, first he becomes Duke of this territory called Gelders, the one that Charles V had a lot of claims to and that was worth a lot of money in June of 1538 against their father's wishes because their father could see that this was a very bad idea and that it would make the emperor very angry. Then Johann III dies in early 1539 in mid-February, so 1539. So now Wilhelm, who's 22 years old and a bit of a hothead, or at least in my opinion, didn't really think things through. He's now Duke of the United Duchies, which is this extremely powerful and wealthy area in Central Europe. 
So then these ambassadors show up at court saying, hey, Wilhelm, our king has heard that you have some eligible sisters. Could we please meet them and report back? So Wilhelm thinks this is a great idea. So things slowly start to kick off. And then in May of 1539, Charles V's beloved wife dies. And he essentially removes himself from society for the entire summer. And I don't know how aware he was of these negotiations between Wilhelm and Henry, well, Cromwell. But by the time Charles V comes out, he finds out, oh, no, there's marriage negotiations between England and the United Duchies, wanting to be nice to both of them because he's trying to gently urge Wilhelm to hand over this property, and he'd rather have Henry not as an enemy. I don't want to say as a friend, but not as an enemy. Kind of lets this happen. So really what was going on is Cromwell and Wilhelm were negotiating behind the emperor's back. And to an extent, the emperor does have an interest in who any of his subjects would marry, especially from such a powerful territory as the United Duchies. In the meantime, Johann Friedrich, the brother-in-law who's married to the older sister Zabilla, isn't really keen on having Henry be another brother-in-law and is not keen on having Henry enter into the Protestant League because Henry's not actually a Protestant at this point. He's more like, he's Reformed, so he's Catholic light. And they had just <laughs> passed the six articles over the summer. Johann Friedrich didn't like this. So he puts, Johann Friedrich puts a ban on anyone else being admitted to the Protestant League for at least a couple of years. So Cromwell arranging this marriage there's some bumps along the way because there's no immediate benefit to Henry. And we all know how well that turned out for Thomas Cromwell. (laughs) Some of us who who enjoyed the uh, Wolf Hall trilogy by Hilary Mantel are still not over the mirror and light. That was tough. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, this is, this is where we, we come on to Anne and, and very much her story. She comes over they get married. It's annulled. She gets the best. I mean, I, I want to say divorce settlement, but we're not. We're going to say annulment settlement mm. in that she gets Richmond Palace. Sweet. She, she gets, gets like a castle. Independent woman life. Like, I mean, it's a risk. I mean, like saying, yeah, you're going to marry Henry VIII. Uh, it'll end up all right. I'd be like, no, nah, I don't trust in that. No way. But it does. She gets, she gets her reward. She gets paid. I think it's, it's a mixed bag. She was effect- effectively a political prisoner in England. She would not have been able to safely travel home. And also there would have been the issue because of course her brother's continuing, continuing to escalate with the emperor. Mm. So who is going to be responsible for sending her home through the emperor's territory? First of all, paying for it. And secondly, if she's captured or otherwise, who's going to be responsible for that? So I do think that with what she was awarded by Henry or rewarded by Henry, it shows that he, that might've been his only time that he said, it's not you, it's me. So he wanted to continue (laughs) to respect her. He has her acknowledged as his sister, said she maintains a high status at court. Anna didn't really enjoy being in England all the time. She did make comments occasionally that this is England and I'm still a foreigner here. And that was several years after she had been in England. So I don't know that she ever really felt at home. Financially, she did well under Henry. 
Edward VI had zero use for her. I don't know that he had any relationship with her. It appears that she had a relationship with both Mary, who was seven or eight months younger than Anna, and also with Elizabeth. But we don't really, there's not really much to show that she had a relationship with Edward VI. And so really all Edward was trying to do was marry her off if he could to get her off the crown's payroll. So he just started taking property from her anyway. So she didn't really do well under Edward VI and then under Mary I. I think things were happy at first, but then she was implicated in the Wyatt Rebellion. And so she had to be distanced from court for a little while. So I would not say it's all smooth sailing. No, it doesn't sound like it, does it? I mean, I like the idea that she sort of was independently wealthy and didn't have to, was not bossed around by a man. Um, But I think it comes as a price. Although in terms of Edward VI, who really wants to hang around with a teenage boy if they don't have to? I know. (laughs) (laughs) I I had to distance myself from him as well. Let's talk, (laughs) let's go back to her family. So what is the Cleves War? The Cleves War happens in 1543 and, from my research, appears to be the reason why Henry married wife number six. Ah, okay. So I've been telling you, or at least one of the motivations, it can't be the sole reason because we all know that Catherine Parr was very attractive and intelligent. But going back to it, so I've been mentioning how her Anna's brother Wilhelm was fighting with the emperor over this piece of land, right? Well, Mm. finally, the emperor has had it. So he's going to have a war now. And in the background, Charles is trying to get Henry to either to openly go against Wilhelm of Cleves and openly ally with Charles V, with the emperor. Henry won't quite do that. So what he winds up doing in the meantime, and also what's happening in England is Wilhelm is trying desperately to get Henry to take his sister back because then that revives the alliance between England and Cleves slash the United Duchies. So instead, Henry marries Catherine Parr. That way, he's not really saying that he's against or for Cleves. He does wind up making a secret alliance with the emperor that comes out later. So there's there's how England gets out of it or how Henry gets out of it. But in the summer of 1543, you have the height of the Cleves War, which is also called the Third War of Galdarian Succession or the Eulich Feud. Lots of names. <laughs> but it's this war between Charles V and Wilhelm over this territory of Gelders. In 1541 or so, Wilhelm had married a French princess. He married Francis I's niece through Marguerite of, of Angoulême. He marries Jean d'Albray. Francis I never quite shows up to the war. So ultimately in August of 1543, Wilhelm is defeated and he has to capitulate to the emperor. That is the Cleves War. Wilhelm winds up being underneath the emperor's thumb for the rest of the emperor's life. He's also winds up marrying, well, his first marriage to Jean d'Albray is annulled which I don't think there's any love lost there because Jean was 12 when they originally married. She never came to live with them. And also, you know, the French king didn't help. So he winds up marrying a Habsburg woman, the niece of Charles V. So Charles V's brother, Ferdinand, was the king of Bohemia. He was a German speaker. Wilhelm was very well acquainted with him. Ferdinand had a bunch of daughters. So Wilhelm marries one and then gets tied into the Habsburg family. I think this is one of the reasons why perhaps we don't focus so much on the German side of history at this time because it's not a united country. There's all these provinces. They're all 
independent. They all have their own, um, their own sort of personality, their own ruling family. It is a minefield to sort out. So how, let's go to, let's go to Saxony here. How did Saxony assert itself and how did this affect the duchy? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Saxony had their own war with Charles V, and it also did not end well. So I think that 1547 was probably one of the worst years of Anna's life or in particular, but also just not a good year for her family. In January 1547, Henry VIII dies. And then months later, Anna's brother-in-law, Johann Friedrich, is captured by the emperor at the height of the first Schmalkaldic War. So we were talking about the League of Schmalkald and the Protestant League being the same thing. So um, there were a series of two wars called the Schmalkaldic Wars. So you have her brother, you have Wilhelm getting his butt kicked by the emperor in 1543, and then you have Anna's sister and brother-in-law being defeated in 1547. So Saxony did try its best to put down the emperor's military and gain maybe a form of independence from the emperor, and it just went it went poorly. It went sideways. The military planning was not great. The intelligence wasn't great. Johann Friedrich almost died. It was a mess. So... And this was the most powerful electorate, so territory. Again, we're coming back to Germany, not yeah. really being Germany. It's um, <laughs> electorates and duchies and all these different things. But an electorate was more important within the hierarchy of the Holy Roman Empire. But okay. it was the most powerful one. It's defeated by the emperor. It's no good. So who is Karl Friedrich? Karl Friedrich was the great hope of the United Duchies. So Wilhelm marries the Habsburg ladies. He has, or ladies, excuse me, I did not mean to say plural, marries one Habsburg lady, has, winds up having two sons, five daughters, one daughter dies young, but his oldest son, Karl Friedrich, is the great hope for the counter-reformation in Europe. He's very well educated, he's intelligent, he is adept, and he gets sent to the Viennese court, so the court in Vienna, to go hang out with his imperial cousins. Winds up being there for a few years. We come upon 1574 and the Pope says, hey, I've heard a lot about your son. Why don't we have him come to Rome? So then Carl Friedrich goes to Rome and the Pope says, you know what? It's a Jubilee year next year. Why don't you stay? And you don't not stay when the Pope asks you to stay. 
So Carl Friedrich winds up staying on in Rome. He is awarded the Golden Rose by the Pope, which, of course, is a sign of fidelity to the Catholic Church and upholding its tenets and its faith, so on and so forth. So high honor. And then the young man who is about 18, 19 years old at this point catches smallpox. Oh, no. And it does not go well. So he winds up passing away. And then the younger brother, Johann Wilhelm, is now the heir to the United Duchies. Wilhelm, on his brother, is very upset about this because Wilhelm himself has gone through a series of strokes and is not well. And it's one of those situations where he could live another 20 years or he could die any day. And at this point, we're looking at about 1575. And Johann Wilhelm is odd. In what way? Yeah, yeah we love odd on History Hacks. Come on. How, how old is he? So he's, he's, a, he's the spare. He's about 11 years old when this happens. Okay. Yeah. He's 11 years old. He was installed as the youngest Bishop of Munster, which was a territory kind of north of the United Duchies. And Anna's aunt, also named Anna, had married into the ruling family there. So she, they had a bunch of cousins there. He's 11 years old. He really is obsessed with being Catholic, very, very obsessed with the church to a degree that is not healthy. And he does not want to leave being involved with this church. So they kind of let him stick around the church, but start training him to become the next Duke. And then about 10 years later, well, I shouldn't jump ahead quite that far. Wilhelm at this point, it's the late 1570s. His wife dies in about 1580. So Wilhelm now is caught between trying to find a new wife for himself. And he was born in 1516. So that would make him what? 64 years old at this point. Um, finding himself a new wife or finding one for his odd son. So Wilhelm does try to find himself a new wife until the emperor says, no, 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 that's foolish. You have a perfectly good son. Your time is over. Wilhelm remains installed as the duke, but just, you know, the emperor is not in favor of Wilhelm getting another wife. So they try to find a suitably Catholic wife for Johann Wilhelm despair. Okay, so we're going to come back to to this odd little little boy then. Oh, we're getting we're going to get to it. This is all part of it. So he gets married. Okay, he gets okay. married. Very, yeah. very. Um, he would not leave the church. They finally pull him out of it because they effectively kick him out. But then he becomes obsessed with sex. He just has very obsessive personality. <laughs> but he can't have a child, and so they decide that someone has cursed him because he starts having these spells where he just has these outbursts and just kind of goes insane a little bit and they get worse and worse and worse. And it gets to a point where he's almost like an invalid. And we have to remember too, his cousin is Don Carlos of Spain, Philip II's son. Don Carlos famously lost his mind. He had an illegitimate cousin through, uh, I believe it was Rudolph II of Emperor Rudolph II, his son, who is illegitimate, but his son also went insane. So there's this history of something going on with these, with this family. We're looking at the Habsburgs mm-hmm. losing their minds. So Johann Wilhelm slowly starts losing his mind and he kind of comes in and out of it and in and out of it. And so now there's a succession crisis because he's nutty. 
They don't know how long it's going to last because sometimes he's just out of it for days at a time. And no one really likes his wife. So he does wind up marrying a suitably Catholic woman named Jacoba or Jacoba von Baden. Mm -hmm. No one really likes her style. She's a little too carefree and fun because she was raised at the Bavarian court. She comes to Cleves. They're a little bit more conservative. And it's just not going well for her. So she tries to seize power. And remember I mentioned earlier that there were, that Wilhelm had four daughters that survived. One of them was still at home and she did not like Jacoba. So she, at this time, while Jacoba is trying to assert power over Johann Wilhelm and gain a regency, starts asserting that Jacoba was having an affair. Classic. Classic, right? I think she actually was, though, which is the worst part. Oh. <laughs> or, or at least she was spending a lot of time with a certain servant at court. And so she d- she didn't do herself any favors. I'll put it that way. So then Jacoba winds up getting brought up on charges of treason and infidelity. That sounds an awful lot like somebody else we know from England several right. years before. Is imprisoned in a tower and mysteriously winds up dead. So it's thought that Sybil, the sister of Johann Wilhelm, Anna's niece, not Anna's older sister, may or may not have arranged for Jacoba to die. How how did she die? Do we do we she, was she just found poisoned or at the bottom of the stairs or she wasn't breathing. They found her the next morning in her chambers and she wasn't breathing. There's speculation as to whether there was no autopsy performed, so there's speculation as to whether she could have been poisoned, but or if she were strangled, it seems to be she, either, she was either strangled, suffocated, or otherwise stopped breathing. Wow. So she was found not breathing one morning after going to bed perfectly healthy. No mourning was ordered at court. Nobody dressed in mourning clothes. They kind of tricked Johann Wilhelm into signing a document that kind of maybe implied that she should be executed. And I'm using a lot of vague words because the document itself was vague. It said wow. something like, I wish for the thing that is vexing me to be destroyed or be taken away so it's not really saying oh Jacoba needs to get dead it's just kind of well we're we're just going to use some vague words and make the crazy man sign it and uh see what happens to her so uh Jacoba is not publicly mourned she isn't actually buried until a little bit later and there's no ceremony there's no funeral so then we look for wife number two Johann Wilhelm winds up marrying wife number two. He's still having a lot of mental health problems. Doctors have not been able to cure it. They even brought in witches at one point to try and cure it, and that didn't work. (laughs) So then clearly we need an exorcism. I mean, why not at this point? It's the kitchen sink, isn't it? You've thrown everything else at the mad. Let's try this. So we're at 1599 by the time this happens. So... Antoinette of Lorraine, who interestingly enough is a descendant of Christina of Denmark, who Henry VIII was considering as a wife when he was wow. considering Anna. Christina of yeah. Denmark. I love that he was considering her as a wife. She's like young, beautiful, has no intention of being his wife. And he's all like, oh, I might want to marry her. And they're like, yeah, she, she ain't going to marry you. Well, so. she winds up marrying Anna's original fiance, Francis of Lorraine. Uh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. But anyway, so Johann Wilhelm winds up marrying Christine of Denmark. I believe it's her granddaughter. And this woman, Antoinette of Lorraine, gets there. She she is well accepted at court. She is well liked at court. But after, you know, decades at this point, we're talking about starting in around around 1580 until now it's 1599. They've been trying to cure Johann Wilhelm of whatever's going on in his brain. Um, he does appear to be obsessive. He does appear to have fits. I have no idea what 
that diagnosis would be nowadays with those are the, the kind of glimpses that we get into his health. He also has moments of clarity. So he's not an imbecile. He's just can't function. And he still has no children, illegitimate or legitimate. And of course, Antoinette's main role is to have a child. So she brings some preachers from Lorraine to try and conduct this exorcism. And when Johann Wilhelm gets to his hunting lodge, he figures out what's going on and tries to have them arrested. Doesn't work. So they take him into the castle chapel. They spend hours yelling at him, possibly hitting him to the point where his courtiers were crying to get the the demon or the devil or whatever it was to identify itself. Well, that doesn't happen. So um, <laughs> they continue on with the exorcism. Johann Wilhelm winds up leaving the room for a little bit. He gets forcibly brought back into the chapel. They try some more. It still doesn't work. At one point, Johann Wilhelm or somebody, because the preachers had their backs turned, starts laughing about the absurdity of this exorcism. And of course, that that must be the devil laughing at God. Anyway, uh, so it doesn't work. So then they start sewing little charms into his bed. They give him all new furniture. They sew little things into his clothes. And lo and behold, he continues to get more and more insane and has no children. Because they won't leave him alone. He's like a mentally ill individual, undiagnosed, 400 years ago or whatever, when people don't understand mental instability and issues like they do now. And these people just berate you constantly. Of course, it's not going to make you better, right? Yeah. And he just, and and he never got better again. I, I have no idea what his, what his afflictions were. But so he dies in early 1609. And with his death, there's no legitimate heir. Antoinette Lorraine does try and hold the regency for a little bit. But the problem is, again, we've got those four sisters in the background. And they all went on to marry and have children. So then there's a struggle over, well, hey, who's going to take control of the United Duchies? Because we were talking earlier about how Zabilla of Cleves' husband, Johann Friedrich, the Elector of Saxony, he failed. He's no longer the Elector of Saxony. His sons are their sons are reduced to being simple dukes. And actually Charles the third is descended from one of Zabilla of Cleves sons. Fun fact. Um, so the Cleves bloodline is actually on the throne of England right now. Amazing. (laughs) Anyway, um, suck it, Henry. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. And, so they're not part of this succession issue. They did briefly, briefly try to intercede to see if they could gain control and, but they weren't willing to put in the effort. So Anna's great and great grand nephews are now saying, okay, we're going to try and take over the United Duchies. Also, you're having a succession crisis to the East with there being a string of emperors not having any sons. And of course you got to have boys. Um, so the 30 years war kicks off. The main theater is to really massively oversimplify things, massively oversimplify. And sometimes, you know, I say all these words and I just don't even know how I have it in my head or how I research <laughs> all this stuff. So um, my husband's gotten very, very good at just kind of smiling and nodding and saying, okay. <laughs> don't worry, Heather, I'm very, very happy in the 30 years war. I'm, I'm in, a, in a good place. Got the, the, the Rhine, the Rhine family. Love them. Yeah. Prince Rupert. Yes. So to the east, you've got the imperial succession crisis. And then to the west, if we want to think of it in terms of the structure of modern Germany, you have a Western theater for 
of Anna of Cleves descendants battling over who's going to control the United Duchies. What winds up happening is Eulichenberg and Cleves Mark is divided out again. And that happens through one of the treaties of Zantin later on in the 17th century. So that is perhaps a bit difficult, but very basic breakdown of the Fondamac dynasty from the early 15th century through the 16th century. There's a lot happening. A lot. I love it that you've got mad people, you've got chaos, you've got disease, you've got everything. Like now I know why you uh, got attached to it. You must like, you must be attached to Anne because obviously you've written about her separately as well. But what other characters in the family are you like? You you have must have a favorite, right? I really like Sibylla. Yeah. I think that all of the all three of the sisters were really really feisty. At one point in 1548, Wilhelm was trying to find husbands for both Anna and Amalia. Amalia had been reportedly too Lutheran for anyone to marry, and she actually refused to go to her sister-in-law Maria von Habsburg's funeral when she died in 1580, when Wilhelm's wife died in 1580, because Amalia did not want to attend a Catholic mass. Wow. So um, Wilhelm wound up getting the last laugh because as Amalia died single and without a husband or children, he wound up having her entombed in the in the family crypt because he died before, or excuse me, Amalia died before Wilhelm did, and this is in a Catholic church. So that's how we kind of got back at her, because she he hated that Amalia was raising Wilhelm's daughters to be Lutherans because Wilhelm was supposed to only have Catholic children. So he kind of more focused on making sure that Carl Friedrich, the ideal heir, and Johann Wilhelm, the odd one, were raised as Catholics because otherwise he would raise the ire of the emperor, which he did not want to do again. But not quite that Catholic, Johann. You know, just don't get obsessed with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, take it down a notch, so... Yeah. In terms of the family, you say that um, that Charles III is descent from them. I'm guessing that their story doesn't end in the Thirty Years' War. They they keep they they still exist. Are they still around today? Descendants. We have to go to the northeast. So if we're looking at Saxony, it's Zabilla of Cleves' sons. She had three surviving sons. She had four total, but one died in infancy. And it's the uh, Dukes of Coburg and Gotha, and I, if I remember correctly, and don't quote me on this, I believe Prince Albert came yes. from there. Yeah, yeah. And he actually brought a portrait, from what I can tell, of Johann Friedrich and Johann Friedrich's mother, that is in the royal collection, with him, and gave that to Queen Victoria. But it is through Prince Albert. That's absolutely he, amazing. He was very fertile. <laughs> it's good to have a hobby. <laughs> well they didn't know really? Netflix. I just love that she was so fed up by baby number nine that um he wasn't even allowed to be in the same room as her they had to communicate via notes because she just used to see his face and lose it <laughs> oh he's done it to me again I want to do this I love yeah. babies so we've learned so much about the house of Cleves today I'm guessing that Anybody who is, you know, we've got a lot of Tudor fans out there, some obsessives, not quite as, not Johann Wilhelm obsessive, but we've got some obsessives. If they're interested in Anne of Cleves, how wonderful is it for them to learn about their family? 
Yeah, I kind of view this new book as almost a part two or a companion to the first one because there really is just so much happening. I mean, you you guys and our wonderful listeners have been very patient listening to me say all these words and talk about all these places, <laughs> and it is complicated. Um, but I think that the book should also be interesting to people who want to learn more about the German Reformation because that is – you cannot have the Fondamach or Cleves dynasty without involving the German Reformation. I mean, I guess you can't have our ref. Could you have our reformation without the the German reformation? That starts. That's the one that starts with Martin Luther and the the you know, sign on the door, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So Otherwise, kind of, it's just Henry VIII kicking off about not liking his wife, isn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, Heather, the Children of the House of Cleves is available now. We'll get it put in our bookstore. Can we do that, Alex? We lovely people indeed. yeah fantastic so you'll be able to buy it from us rather than giving money to any less scrupulous booksellers out there heather thank you so much for joining us today thank you for having me our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale of our book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack. Or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.